Welcome to 30 Brave Minutes, a podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In 30 Brave Minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. I'm Ashley Allen, the Associate Dean of the College, and I am excited to share our podcast with you today. We will be discussing the evolution of comics, where we will touch on how comics began and how their creation and appreciation have evolved over time. On today's show, I will be joined by our Dean, Dr. Richard Gay, as well as three UNCP faculty members. Dr. Terrence Dollard is a professor in our mass communication department, as well as the creator of a show called Comic Culture that is showcased on the UNC TV North Carolina channel. Dr. Kevin Freeman is an associate professor in the Political Science and Public Administration program and is former president of a publisher called Action Lab Comics. Finally, Dr. Robert Epps is the Martha Beach Endowed Professor in our art department, and he also works as a freelance color artist. In today's episode, we cover everything from the process of creating a comic, to Marvel, to cosplay, and I know you're going to enjoy what these guests have in store. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're really excited to talk a little bit about comics, uh, what defines them, and where they're headed. If you don't mind, just going ahead and doing a little bit of an introduction um, of yourselves. And maybe, Terrence, do you mind if we start with you? Sure. Uh, I'm Terrence Dollard. I'm a professor in the Department of Mass Communication here at UNC Pembroke. Uh, I host a weekly television program called Comic Culture, which airs on PBSNC across the state and streams on the PBS website across the globe. Uh, I've been reading comics since I really can remember, and I'm uh, happy to be here today talking comics. I'm Kevin Freeman. I'm in the political science department. I was a guest on Terrence's show. <laughs> Uh, I'm also uh, a lifelong collector. I, I mostly collect from the 70s and the 80s uh, these days, so more nostalgic for me. Um, and I'm a, a former creator and a former exec in a, at a small press. So I'm Rob Epps, professor in the art department here. Uh, I went through and got my master's in sequential art uh, from SCAD, so one of the earlier official practitioner programs that were out there. Uh, been lucky enough to be involved in comic projects with MBM, uh, Zenoscope, and about to have something come out with uh, Peter Gillis and Pat Broderick through First Comics. So I'm excited for for that to come through, hopefully in the the very near future. Great, thank you guys so much. So my first question is for Rob. For all the novices out there, how do we define a comic and how is it different from other things such as anime or manga? Well, then I'll pull out uh, my UC Bible, the Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Uh, and they went so far to give the, the definition of being juxtaposed pictorial and other images in a deliberate sequence to sound uh, super official there. And so the big thing that, that he determined to separate comics from cartoon is this idea of having space side-by-side -side imagery. So the idea of the single panel that you would see in a New Yorker or a good old family circus in the paper would technically not fit this definition of being a comic that would just become a cartoon. Uh, most people think of the idea of the packaging of the book 
the comic book that they've grown up with um, that's been around kind of since the 1930s or so. Yeah, so there's the the big highbrow definition for you is the juxtaposed pictorial and other images in a deliberate sequence to set up comics. Manga would just be basically the Japanese kind of iteration of that. Uh, so again, their, their tradition pulls from the, the 18th century Japanese woodblock prints. Uh, so you think of Hokusai and the wave is probably one of the most famous woodblock prints and that's been repeated all over the place. In fact, it was kind of this, one of the big starting images for an animation created for the Tokyo Olympics uh, that was going around uh, in there. And of course, is on everybody's t-shirt and mug and, and whatnot. But yeah, so that came from woodblock prints, um, which had a narrative aspect to them as well. I have a follow-up question to that, though. You mentioned the juxtaposition in a sequence. So does that mean that comics technically are serials that are come out in installments over time? It's been that way. A true graphic novel is a standalone one work not being serialized, but still having juxtaposed images on the page um, would be the delineation I would I would make between uh, being a pure serial as we think of with our mainstream comics and their uh, our superhero comics and stuff like that. Now, a lot of us who aren't so familiar with comics associated with the word comedy, is there a connection there or is it just a uh, coincidence? Well, I think when you look back at one of the earlier uh, comic titles, uh, the, the way that American comics started was newspaper distributors would look for ways to make extra money. So they, they found that people like the Sunday funnies in their paper. And usually they'd be, you know, little uh, short jokes and whatnot. So they bundled those up into books and sold them at newsstands and they were very cheap and kids loved them. And then uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Major Wheeler uh, came up with the idea of putting together all new stories. It was the first uh, American comic of all new content. And because it had this connection to those newspaper strips where it was, you know, uh, Cats and Jammer Kids, uh, but, you know, when you take a look at those scripts that were in the newspaper that were designed to, you know, get more people to read the newspaper, they were more humorous in tone because you would read it in the, the morning before going to work. You'd read it in the afternoon after coming home from work. And the idea was that it would break up the news and give you a little bit of a smile and give the kids a reason to get into newspapers. So because they had that comedic uh, bent in this, uh, the earlier forms, I think that's why they call them comic books now, because they were just that's what people were familiar with. And that's the, the name that they gave them. And it just kind of stuck. That's a great answer. Thanks. Do you guys mind talking um, a little bit about the process of putting together a comic? What that looks like? Well, a lot of it just depends. I mean, mo most comic book endeavors, I would say, are a, a multi-person effort. Uh, and oftentimes you have a, a script for someone who writes the script for the comic. Uh, and then once the script is complete, then a, a penciler will draw the basic layout basic layouts, uh, the, the rough sketches, if you will. And then and after that, there's oftentimes a finisher or an inker who will put permanent uh, black black ink on the art as well to make it pop out and do a lot of the shading and this and that. And oftentimes there's a, a colorist, assuming it's a color uh, comic, who will, who will color all that finished art. And you have a letterers as well uh, who not only write the, the word balloons that are above uh, the character's heads, but the sound effects and other things related to that. And then often you have an editorial staff, if it's a bigger publisher, who, who makes sure that, that things are going the way that they should. But of course, there are plenty of uh, exceptions to that. And there are a lot of 
uh, creators who do all of it themselves and 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 put out their, their book kind of independently of, of any assistance. So so it's just sort of depends. I think we have a colorist with us today. Is is that right? Yeah, that's what the majority of my professional work has been. Um, the the stuff I did for NBM, I was what would this would be the illustrator. So I actually did the penciling and the inking and the lettering in that case for the parts that were part of the confessions of a cereal eater. But the, the majority of my stuff has been color work. So the basic team layout, uh, that Kevin mentioned there is exactly kind of our standard mainstream version painted comics because printing, uh, processes have gotten stronger and, and more varied over time have become even more prevalent and digital distribution of comics have moved a lot of steps from being in the physical world or analog to being digital steps. Um, so even a lot of people who would be a finisher slash inker, like Kevin mentioned nowadays have moved on to doing that digitally, uh, rather than actually using India ink and brushes or Quill. And Rob, when you do your work, you're not doing it on the board, right? You're doing it uh, on a computer. Right. So yeah, I've most, my, my pro work has all been in the, the digital age here. Uh, so probably, I guess it would say mid nineties, the majority of mainstream coloring and printing processes moved, uh, through going through a digital process, just so much easier to transfer files around and not have to worry about like cutting out little pieces of, uh, of acetate of different colors and having them slip. And suddenly Spider-Man has a yellow arm instead of uh, red or whatnot, uh, like you would see in the very, very old uh, printing process that was there. And so the greater flexibility, um, the higher quality in paper that came about from the direct market has definitely made a, a colorist role a lot more to the fore than it was uh, in the past. Nice. Thank you. Terrence, will you talk to us a little bit about comic culture and just the premise behind it and, and your goal with the show? Sure. Uh, well, comic culture got a start because uh, in MassCom, we would have uh, every semester about two classes that would learn television production. And part of that would be uh, we would have clients coming in from the school district or from the university to do shows and students would learn how to do the production work. And then part of their grade would be directing these programs for the, uh, the, the channel that we had, the access channel. And one semester we had a lot of cancellations and I had to come up with something for the students to direct. So I had this idea, I've always liked comics and uh, I thought, would it, wouldn't it be neat if we reached out to a writer or an artist and maybe we could bring them in uh, using Skype and we could talk to them. So we did a couple of episodes where I was not the host and we had someone come in to do that for us. And then uh, they were unavailable, so it fell on my shoulders. and. I couldn't really teach a production class and host a show because I couldn't be in the control room and, and guiding the students. So I spoke with my department chair, Dr. Liddy, and she said, well, why don't we do this in our practicum class? Because we do a number of shows for our students to give them experience while they're on campus, because we know we're not in Charlotte. We know we're not in Raleigh. We know we're not in Wilmington. So if we can give them stuff to do on campus, that's, that's going to be a lot more instructive. So we started doing the show as practicum and we would go uh, do, you know, anywhere from 10 to 13 shows a semester. And um, I would put them on YouTube and we'd run them on our channel here. And then one day I decided the show was, uh, actually someone told me that the show was good enough that we could probably put it on the air. <laughs> and um, since she's a lot smarter than I am, 
uh, I listened to my wife and uh, we reached out to uh, PBS in North Carolina and I spoke to someone there who said, we always wanted to do something with UNC Pembroke and I showed them the program and they said, we want to air it. And I guess it's been about three years now. We've been on, we've, we've produced in the neighborhood of 100 and, uh, let's say 125 episodes of uh, content for PBS. And we're working on that. As a matter of fact, today being a Thursday, this afternoon, I'll be recording another interview. And I'll speak to anyone who's an artist, a writer, an editor. Uh, in Kevin's uh, case, he was the president of a small publisher. And he was uh, also a creator of a, a great strip uh, called, uh, was it Subculture? And um, so, you know, it was a chance to, to speak to people and learn uh, about them. I, I get to speak to scholars who write about comics. And it's uh, just a great chance for me, kind of like this podcast, to learn as much as I can from from these folks and and be inspired maybe to do my own artwork and hopefully to inspire people who are watching to uh, either pick up a comic or to, you know, make their own comic. Well, so that brings me uh, to Kevin. Will you share a little bit about uh, the production of comics? Sure. Uh, so most, uh, again, there, there's sort of two different ways to go. Uh, the, the standard way is that you, uh, m most publishers will go through a distributor, and there's only one primary distributor, although there's a couple of smaller ones now, DC is kind of branched off and doing their own, but uh, Diamond Comics Distributors is the, the primary one that's been around for a long time. So it's their job really to facilitate uh, that transition between publishers completing a book and getting that book on shelves, predominantly in specialty stores, comic book stores, because we don't see uh, comics quite as much in bookstores and drugstores and the places where a lot of us on this show probably got ours when we when we were kids. Most, uh, if you're putting out a physical book, these publishers usually have some kind of contract with a with a, a printer. Uh, there's a lot that are in Canada, some in the United States, and many go off, abroad offshore to their books in China or South Korea or elsewhere. Uh, so those books are printed usually by sending digital files uh, the, these days uh, to the specs of whatever the, the trim, the cut, the size of the book happens to be. Uh, when the printer gets those files, they then print those books out in the agreed quantity, and that can depend on how big the publisher is and how wide the distribution of that book happens to be. Then uh, the printer will send those freshly minted books to Diamond or to another one of the comic book distributors. And then those comic distributors then ship their books to uh, the vendors who, who sell the books uh, all over the country. And most new comics come out on, on Wednesday. So Wednesday is called uh, sort of new comic book day for people uh, who are in the know. So it's a multi-step process. There's a lot of people who were involved in uh, from the very beginnings until you have one in your house uh, thumbing through it. Thank you. The way that comics are portrayed in um, popular culture, I think, has changed a little bit. I guess our representation, our understanding, our appreciation of comics has changed. Like Kevin said, back back in the day, we could go to a stationery store, maybe a supermarket, a convenience store. Now you have to go to these specialty shops to get them. But I remember being a, in high school and reading comics, and you had to keep it hush-hush. You didn't want anyone to know you read comics because comics were for kids. And what kind of... Uh, Dope are you, you're reading comics. Um, and then something sort of happened in the late 80s. Uh, a film called Batman came out and everyone wanted to go see Batman with Michael Keaton. And I remember going to the, the opening night and standing on a long line at the Comac Multiplex on Long Island and uh, getting in to see one of the, I think, three or four screens that were showing the movie. And it was a huge hit. And um, even then, you know, people didn't quite know how to handle comics. They were 
almost uh, as if they, they were embarrassed to say that they saw the Batman movie, even though people loved wearing the T-shirts and getting the keychains and the toys. Um, but that seemed to be the first step in respectability. And then there was a, a period where maybe things weren't quite as uh, you know noticeable in the cinema, but uh, comics in the 90s took off. There was a great big boom where uh, there was a speculator market where people thought that if they bought that issue of Superman where he dies, it's going to be worth a million dollars and I can retire and I'll live in a mansion. And um, uh, so, you know, that sort of kind of, I guess, built the profile of comics. And then we started to see the X-Men movies and the Blade movies. And I think the Spider-Man movie in the early 2000s kind of uh, kicked off that new wave of respectability. And then you get folks like, um, you know, scholars who are now writing about it. Uh, from the point of view of its cultural impact or or even just its its you know quality of of storytelling you know it's kind of crazy how in various underground elements had been going along for quite a while and in the 1970s we had an incredible Hulk TV show that was actually not all that um, unpopular uh, Ralph Bakshi made an animated movie out of an underground comic in the 1970s as well uh, with Fritz the cat and but none of those had nearly the mass market appeal that you would see in the night in the 1980s with with that mainstream character taken into a, a bigger mainstream media and you think probably the people that were reading kind of those seminal uh story arcs that started to appear as that more direct market pushed up production values and then caused creators to think and longer expanded stories as opposed to just issue-based stories uh, in there are the ones that started then teaching the stuff uh, in college classrooms that, that Terrence mentioned earlier uh, with breaking out Watchmen or Dark Knight Returns or even uh, maybe lesser known things like Cerebus High Society uh, from Dave Sim and Gerhard um, or Mouse, which was originally published in Playboy. Uh, so here you see this Art Spiegelman, this New York cartoonist writing the story about his father's surviving the Holocaust, but anthropomorphizing uh, the characters into mice and cats uh, and being published in Playboy of all places. Uh, but then that seeping out and becoming collected and, and being seen by more people. Um, also, besides just the movie route, we had these collections, again, this idea of saying something was a graphic novel somehow made it better than than being a comic. I've got a follow-up question to that. Uh, both of you have alluded to this idea of merchandise. I mean, clearly there's aficionados that want to collect the actual comic book, uh, but there's also this whole side industry of, you know, characters and the T-shirts that Terrence had mentioned there. And I'm curious how much all the that type of merchandising helped to bring uh, the comic culture to the mainstream. Do you think that contributed in any way? I would I would think so. It would like uh, Rob was just saying. You know, when you were able to go to the, uh, the the comic shops and meet other people who were your peers who were buying comics, or maybe they were older than you but they were buying comics, uh, it gave you that sense of community. And then walking around and seeing someone wearing the Batman T-shirt. Either they liked the Batman film and they thought Batman was cool. So that, you know, gave you some, uh, I guess, street cred as well. But it also it was just a way that you could identify other people who were who were fans. And it took comics from being something that was perceived as being for kids to being something that an older person could uh, could enjoy. You could be a teenager, you could be in your 20s or in my case, in your 50s and enjoy, uh, you know, comics uh, non-ironically. 
Yeah, I mean, comics were, and, and I'll take it even a step further, comics were kind of a counterculture uh, prior to a lot of this mainstream emergence of things. So uh, to, to stereotype a little bit, a lot of people who weren't kids who read comics, these are the same people who were playing Dungeons and Dragons and living in their parents' basement and doing that sort of thing. And so this mainstream, yeah, we can all raise our hands probably. But the mainstreaming that has come as a result of the Batman movie, it has mainstreamed the culture so that people don't necessarily have to hide it anymore, as Terrence alluded to. You can be proud to be a comics fan. You can be proud to be a, a manga fan or an anime watcher. While it, all this mainstream emergence hasn't necessarily facilitated a, a gigantic spike in sales numbers, particularly in the West, when it comes to the comic book industry in and of itself, the more widestream prevalence of comic book culture that we see in today's mainstream media and elsewhere uh, has allowed this this subculture of, of people to sort of emerge and be proud of what they do and proud of the, the hobby that they that they enjoy. This is Chancellor Robin Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu slash give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. Okay, as you guys mentioned, the world of comics has become more mainstream with the portrayal of DC and Marvel comics in the cinema. But the creators, writers, and artists have been lost in this notoriety. Is this something that can be changed and should it change? Yeah, it's a very unfortunate scenario here. And it, it happens, I, you know, for me, I also uh, play in, in animation and um, characters are like the celebrity voice actors for comics. You know, when you hear about an animation, who do you hear about? You hear about the voice actor, but the voice actor is only one small part of that of that great big thing. There's teams of people behind that. Same thing in comics. And so unfortunately the media, the adapted media being the film, the people that are in the, the kind of premiere spots within that, uh, the director, the actor, or the character that they're portraying suck up all the oxygen. And so then the names of the people, even the screenwriters who are adapting stories written by other writers from years ago, they get more cachet than the original writers. The adaptation is giving the supposed legitimacy uh, here as opposed to looking back at the original media. Slipped out somewhere, someone said comics as a genre. And see, comics aren't a genre and superheroes aren't a genre in and of itself. Superheroes are a type of character that can be used to tell a mystery story, a horror story, a love story, an action story. And those are your genres, right? And so the unfortunate association of comics as genre, and it happened with animation too, animation as supposedly a genre uh, here in Western culture is kind of an unfortunate oversimplification of, of a medium that has a lot of uh, potential. But you know what is sold has been one particular genre 
within one particular media. And so it's unfortunately reinforced that stereotype. There's so many mainstream things that all of us are watching and consuming on a daily basis that many folks don't even know have their basis in in comic books. I mean, I'll, I'll use one of the easiest ones. I mean, The Walking Dead, which is so so popular with so many people, that was originally a, a comic book. Even The Matrix was uh, originated as a, as a comic book, and we go on and on with countless examples of this. And when Americans or when we in general think of comic books, we think of superheroes, but, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that is embraced by by assuming public has its origins in, in the in the comic medium. I was going to say, I think everyone's familiar with Stan Lee, uh, and he gets a lot of credit, some deserve it, some maybe not so deserve it. You know, he was in all the Marvel movies up until his passing. But, you know, he was the editor of, of Marvel during the big boom in the early 60s. He wrote most of the dialogue, but he was very hands-off with his art team. You might tell Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko the basic idea of a story. Wouldn't it be great if, you know, uh, Peter Parker has to go to the prom, but then Doc Ock attacks, and then Steve Ditko would go and turn in, you know, 24 pages of a story that then, you know, Stan Lee would interpret. So, you know, there is that argument. Who did the real storytelling in that case? Was it the artist? Was it the writer? Um, but in the end, you know, I guess because Stan Lee was more affiliated with the brand of Marvel than Steve Ditko, who left because he didn't really like the direction Stan Lee was taking Spider-Man in, you know, he to the victor go the spoils, I suppose. But, you know, when you look at someone like Jack Kirby, who I don't know how he did it. I mean, three books a month of epic stories. Uh, he would do nine panels on a page till he realized that he got paid the same money if he did four panels on a page. So, you know, the artists are, are largely forgotten. A lot of the other creators are largely forgotten. And if you look at the Marvel movies that have been popular, um, guys like Jim Starlin, who created Thanos, the, the big bad guy in the, the first uh, Avengers movies, he gets a screen credit, but we don't really know that he's the one who came up with Thanos. We don't know Roy Thomas, who came up with The Vision. We don't know Jerry Conway, who did so much work with Spider-Man and Gwen Stacy. So um, it's it's kind of hard uh, to to know who to give the credit to all the time. But I mean, I could be the artist, but that's that's my opinion. <laughs> Uh, nice to know that uh, we have people plugging the arts here. I, I love that, Terrence. Just because of time, let's turn our attention to the future of comics and what can librarians do to introduce comics to new readers? I think librarians are doing a great job of not just picking the expected uh, comics or graphic novels or trade paperbacks, but they're they're finding uh, biographies. They're they're finding uh, historical comics. They're they're finding those off the radar um, all ages books and they're putting those into uh, the hands of readers who you know that they don't have to spend any money to go to a library they can just take the book out and read it and be inspired and maybe they'll go out and buy something in the future but the the great job of pulling out the, the comics that aren't quite so mainstream I, I spoke to um, a gentleman by the name of Henry Barajas and he's doing books that are more toward the, the, the Latinx uh, experience so he did a, an biographical comic about his uh, grandfather who was an activist in California, but also was a Marine during World War II and had this, this great public life, but also had this, this sordid private life. And then he's also doing, a, like Kevin mentioned, Dungeons and Dragons. He's doing a, a Mesoamerican version of Dungeons and Dragons in comic form uh, called Helm Grayskull. But that's the sort of thing that librarians are, are putting into uh, their collections and into the, the stacks that are maybe not going to get the, the attention at a comic shop. Uh, but again, I'll defer to uh, Kevin and Rob, who might have a few more insights. 
And those books, well, the, the kind of uh, the young adult stuff that we see all over the place in Barnes and Noble and places now, that's really served as a huge gateway for, for a lot of younger readers to get involved in into graphic storytelling. Um, because I think all three of us would agree. I mean, comics is comics is literature, and there's important stories to tell uh, in comics that are just as important as anything that one might read in their honors English class. Um, so those things like Diary of a Wimpy Kid and Dogman and some some of these other sort of mainstream young adult books that are selling by the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands even. The libraries are, are fully stocking a lot of those books. And hey, if you like Dogman, then hey, maybe you want to try Bone, for example, which which is a little maybe less mainstream, but is something that but I could kind of get you into, into more more mainstream or what we would consider to be a traditional magazine kind of form of thing rather rather than these hardcover sort of that look like hardcover paperback books at a standard book, bookstore. So they, they serve as that neat gateway to get into comics. You know, a lot of these the stories mentioned by both Terrence and Kevin, you know, besides there's the young adult and there's like the independent comic scenario that's been collected. You know, Fun Home by Alison Bechtel, which then eventually became a Tony winning musical. So not only are things adapted to the movies, but they adapted to other media, too. Since we've gotten more and more stuff put out that way, much like you'd see anthologies of of genre fiction of some type. Now there's uh, anthologies of kind of like award winning comics uh, that are out there. And so those would be some great things to to add to libraries and there is to find kind of the the yearly awards kind of best of collections where they'll take snippets out of lots of different stories uh, from lots of different uh, markets in there. So whether it's something that's more towards an independent or a mainstream or or an adult autobiographical thing, they're all collected within these uh, these juried uh, text. And so that's kind of cool to see it still in its original media even though it's only a, a, a small chunk of it. And that can also be kind of a gateway uh, for folks to, to discover some of these other artists and creators out there. Oh, also, since you said the future, there's another interesting thing that not so much connected with librarians, um, but just delivery method. Obviously, now digital has been around for a while. The, the iPad as a device coming out, what, nine years ago? or such, I, I might be, but it's not really all that incredibly long um, has made, since you have that bigger screen, has made the idea of the delivery of comics via digital much, much more viable since that's becoming a, a ubiquitous device for a lot of people. Um, and so the delivery has sometimes, in some cases, left the page altogether and gone to the web browser. And I even happened to, across this thing uh, that's a really interesting bit called the Rayuba Archive, in which they they turned comics, uh, digital comics, into a, a a game scenario, and since they they pit comic characters up against each other, and people vote via social media over which one they like, and so then whichever one wins takes over the square on kind of a, a chessboard like. Uh, illustration and then gets to draw another story versus another creator's new character. So it's interesting to see how it's delving into almost an interactive uh, scenario as well. I'm becoming more and more interested in uh, virtual reality as a medium. Do you know if anyone's doing any work to to take the, take comics into the virtual realm? I see more of an animation 
uh, scenario there, uh, since the the time element comes in rather than the space element. Right. Um, and so a lot of there are a lot of animation creators that are doing that, and probably one of my favorite, relatively recent ones uh, was Duet by Glenn Keane. And so he was an animator with Disney for many, many, many years and has gone on to do his own stuff. In fact, he did a traditional 3D animated movie for Netflix recently. It's like Daughter of the Moon or something like that. Uh, but in between doing that, he created basically this animated short uh, along with Oculus Rift. Um, he, I think he worked with them to help develop it. And so they, they describe him as the render engine of the piece because he he's, was still literally drawing his his frames uh, to create this piece, yet it's still virtual reality in the sense that the viewer controls the viewpoint of what's going on uh, and, and as they move their head around in that virtual space. Um, so probably, yes, yeah, since the, the time is more the juxtaposition, that tends to push more towards animation rather than the space juxtaposition of comics. But I think that'd be an interesting way to try that. That's still something you we could try and play with and see if that would fit for kind of more of a space juxtaposition um, uh, aspect there. Have we seen any resistance to these new directions um, that comics seem to be moving? There's, there's a polite way to put this answer. Um, uh, yes, yes. I, I think the fact that, as Rob was saying, comics are a medium, and within this medium you have many different genres. There are folks out there, uh, perhaps they, um, they're they uh, middle-aged. I'm not going to say anything about demographics, but there are some, some folks who are resistant to see new people coming into what they view as their playground. Um, and they are the, the type of folks who will see maybe you know, a young woman at a, a con and ask, oh, do you know who Wolverine's dad is or some gatekeeper question. So I think there are folks out there who don't like this new uh, influx of people of color, of, of uh, non-binary uh, creators or, or female readers of comics coming in and, and you know, kind of messing up their poise or whatnot. Um, and it, it doesn't really make much sense because it's, it's kind of like saying, I don't want anyone to make a movie that I don't like because, you know, like this type of movie. There's so many different movies out there. You don't have to go see a rom-com if that's not your your cup of tea. You can maybe go see a slasher film if that's what you prefer. But you really shouldn't try and keep somebody else from enjoying stuff. But that's that's kind of my opinion. Consumers or fans, I mean, they invest themselves in these characters. And, and Clark Kent has been Superman ever since I was a kid. And by gosh, it should be Clark Kent who is Superman. And so when something kind of goes against the grain and they introduce a person of color uh, or they make uh, Tony Stark a, a child, I mean, some, some, that stuff that just doesn't... Uh, doesn't work very well with people who have these, these notions of what the character should be like and what the character should be doing and who should be creating those characters uh, in, in the first place. So you did get a lot of backlash. And, and I mean, Terrence isn't hidden when you say a lot of it are these older collectors have been doing it for readers, consumers who have been doing it for a long time, whereas the younger generation, they're much more open to, to push the envelope on, on a lot of these more traditional stories that we see. I would think that would lend itself to a lot of true true creativity, expansion of, of the medium as well. Now, I have a question that started to follow up on something Terrence had said there about a con. Could you talk to us about the popularities of the various uh, 
uh, Comic Cons, etc. And when this phenomenon started taking place, and uh, what costumes you guys like to wear when you attend uh, for your cosplay, could you talk a little bit about that, please? Well, um, I, I've gotten to go to, to uh, conventions in the, the 1980s. I went to one on Long Island called Icon, which was held at Stony Brook University. It was more of a science fiction convention. I got to meet Michael Dorn, who played Worf on Star Trek The Next Generation, and that was a, a big thrill. I also got to speak to Denny O'Neill, who was the writer and editor of Batman, wrote a lot of the, uh, the, the seminal stories for that character. But, you know, cons have been around, I guess... Uh, Kevin or Rob might know, but I think they've been around for, for decades. Going back, I think there were some in the 40s or 30s. I think Julie Schwartz, the great editor of Superman, was noted for setting up a convention in the 40s or something like that of science fiction fans. Uh, but they've been around and they've just become more and more popular. I guess San Diego is the one where movie stars go to. Um, and then you get the conventions that are just about comics or just about cosplay or just about manga or anime. Uh, so there seems to be a flavor for everyone. And and those big, um, I guess, aggregate cons like San Diego. Yep, I think you're spot on there. Uh, yeah, the you mentioned the popularity aspect, and here's where some more friction has has come up over the years. Because again, as the adaptations of of the stories gain a lot of more notoriety, and then all of a sudden they start to take up space in said convention and artists and creators where they used to be able to have a uh, that was kind of their home turf or whatnot find themselves maybe pushed out a little bit and so in some cases you see even separate conventions pop up uh, almost in competition of the first one so san diego was was just originally 20 people in a room talking about comics and now it's it's packed to the gills of the San Diego Convention Center, which is amazingly large space, um, and and people waiting in, hour, uh, in line for hours just to get inside a room to wait in line or wait in for a chair and then hopefully wait to then see somebody come out. And unfortunately, it ends up being the more, well, I'm going to be, there's a coloring my perspective there. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it becomes the big uh, action star rather than the creator who's up on the stage. The creators then suddenly go, well, we, we want our own space. And so all of a sudden they make their own convention down at a smaller memorial hall, uh, auditorium um, to try and recapture that old magic of connecting with their fans more directly. All right, so what about the concept of cosplay? Is that is that old as well? Like how long have people been dressing as the characters here? <laughs> and that's strongly linked to the convention scene, at least in the United States. I mean. Uh, Cosplay has been going on. I mean, cos cosplay, you probably know, is short for costume play. I mean, we could make the argument that, and who knows, uh, I don't know the, the origins, but it's been going on in Japan for decades where uh, people will dress as their favorite anime or manga characters. Uh, then it has spilled over into the, the American side of things as well. And conventions, whether it's a comic convention or a convention that's dedicated exclusively to cosplay, I mean, these, these become venues where a lot of these fans can really express themselves and show their appreciation for their favorite characters. And, and so dressing up as, some, as their favorite character becomes a way for them to show their appreciation for the, whatever it is that they like, but it allows them to, to, to freely express themselves. I mean, some of this goes back to the origins that was hinted at a little earlier, where uh, comic readers are kind of this counterculture. Uh, when you're at a convention, you're with thousands of people who are your ilk, 
And so you can express yourself as freely as you want. And a majority of the people who are at that convention are going to appreciate the effort that you've made to, to show your, uh, your, your fandom uh, right in front of you in the form of a costume or something similar to that. And it is always fun when you go to the conventions, you can tell what movies are going to come out because you see more people dressed as those characters. And for a while, it would just be, you know, a game that I would play at Heroes Con in Charlotte would be count the Harlequins and count the Deadpools. And <laughs> by the end of the day, you'd be you'd run out of fingers, toes and, and other parts to count on because there would just be so many of them. Um, and then if you ever get a chance to go to, I'm sure Kevin and Rob have been there, Dragon Con in uh, Atlanta which is held around uh, Labor Day weekend every year. That is five buildings worth of, of convention space that they have. And they even have a, a parade down the street of cosplay. So people can put on their best costumes and walk down the streets of Atlanta uh, to, you know, adoring uh, fans who are going to applaud, you know, their uh, post-Supergirl or post-Crisis Supergirl costume or something along those lines, you know. You can get really fine in particular at a show like Dragon Con. And it's a wild thing. Um, even the the SCAD sequential art department uh, was started by a guy who actually went to SCAD originally as an illustrator, illustration major. His name is Bob Pendarvis. And one of the big things he was noted for was a Hello Kitty costume that he made and would uh, go to Dragon Con and run around with this giant head to fit the proportions of, of the actual Hello Kitty character in there. So yeah, it's uh, definitely this this wild thing that's really taken off and, and again, brought a lot of, lot of notoriety and brought in a lot of dollars for convention owners and people who are running those things. Unfortunately, in some cases, artists, have, in, uh, especially kind of of the older ilk, have seen that as cutting into their bottom line. And so that's caused some friction too that's out there. But yeah, it's great to see people, you know, expressing their love for for the the character and then their artistry. Some things are just really amazing and and are mashups of different characters. So you know, the Harlequin, you'll just as likely to see Harlequin mixed up with Boba Fett, you know. And so all of a sudden you have a Star Wars armor, but it's red and black uh, with with the gesture pom poms falling off the helmet or whatnot. So you, there's crazy artistic stuff that can come out of, of these situations. And one of the interesting things is that this it's kind of come full circle now in that there are professional cosplayers, though these people who were dressing up in costume as fans, many of them have evolved into professional cosplayers who are guests now at conventions. You guys are opening up an entire new world to, to me. I'm really enjoying, I wanna to go to Atlanta now and see this parade of, of, of characters there. Um, I have a question. Is there a huge market for ready-made costumes or are most of the things that you see at the conventions really homemade jobs where people really are expressing their creativity? If it's not already developed, it's it's developing. There's you know, a lot of like those same professional costumers that Kevin mentioned, cosplayers that Kevin mentioned, with they'll make a TikTok showing how they put together their their costume. So they'll actually show the creation process and in some cases make pieces and sell them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, there is that cottage market as, as now more and more things get commodified, whether you, you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, it gives people opportunity to become entrepreneurs in a way. Uh, and social media has made that more conceivable as, as almost a, a profession and there are money-making 
uh, entrepreneur option for people to then distribute. You guys, I've really enjoyed this so much. I feel like I've learned a lot. I've been inspired. So thank you guys so much for sharing. This podcast was edited by Ashley Allen and transcribed by Janet Gentes. The theme music was created by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves!